Hello and welcome to episode 36 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, brought to you brought to you by those lovely people at the Original Devil T-Shirt Company. And I am proudly at this very moment, and if we were on air, I could show you my Original Devil T-Shirt in black with the striking devil vintage logo on it. And I'm loving it. You've got yours on, Yandy. Yeah, and those who tune into the video channel and saw my latest gaming upload will have seen me displaying it and wearing it proudly on there. It's a great, cracking T-shirt. The, the fit. Are you finding that the fit is just perfect? Yeah, I've got a large. I've, I've got black and a large. Black because of that's my soul uh, yeah. and large. <laughs> and it fits, it fits great. It looks good. Uh, arrived on Saturday. Test drove it yesterday, and I'm wearing it now as we're doing the show. The print quality is really good as well. I mean, this is this is not the kind of print that washes off after the first wash. This is a this is a, a lasting print. That's the original Devil T-shirt company, and if you stick around before the end of the program, we'll be offering you a 10% discount for first-time buyers. That's the original Devil T-shirt company. Roll credits. <laughs> So, here we are, episode 36, who'd have thunk it? I know we say that yeah. every week, <laughs> yeah, who'd have thunk it? Have you been, you okay? We're continuously surprised uh, how, how we're continuing going here. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Um, I'm on a week off at the moment, celebrated me 19th wedding anniversary. Of which weekend. I want to congratulate you on 19 wonderful years. I think you should congratulate Kerry for putting up with me for this long. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Because of lockdown, well, because of COVID situations and everything, obviously it wasn't as big a celebration as we'd like to have had. Well, you've we normally have like, you got 20 years. We normally have games and gatherings and drinks and junk food and loads of people popping over from over other side at Pennines. But we, it was just a low-key affair with just us and the kids this time. Oh, that's nice. You've got the big one next year, so you could do you do something spectacular with two-o. that. Yeah, that's 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 if next year ever happens because I'm not putting anything past 2020 now. Well, yeah, I think 2020 is is uh, is like the serial killer at the end of the movie that keeps on coming back. Just when you thought it was in the uh, it was dead in the closet, closet door opens behind you. Tanya, we'll get to December the 31st. You'll look out the window and see four giant horsemen riding on the clouds, <laughs> one of them wielding a scythe, and you'll just think, huh, figures. Yeah, that <laughs> alien invasion. Yeah, 2024. <laughs> Okay, so um, some sad news since we last spoke, and that's the passing of a of a Donny girl, a Doncaster girl herself, uh, Diana Rigg, Dame Diana Rigg. It did come up as a, as a surprise, and and uh, the first thing I thought was, well, there goes a part of my growing up. But there goes for me, it was there goes another Avenger because we only lost Donna Blackman earlier this year. Yeah, and it just seems like a big double whammy because uh, you know for for people of our generation watching John Steed with his companions in the Avengers was an absolute joy. And Diana Rigg for me was one of those like early schoolboy crushes as Miss Peel in the Avengers. I was obsessed. She was only in it for two seasons, but boy, she had such an impact. That was the definitive Avengers run. I mean, the, the honor Blackman years were fantastic and the, uh, uh, and the subsequent series were good. But when you think of the Avengers, you think it with, with Emma Peel and you think yeah. of the cat suits and, and the fighting style and the fantastic opening. And the credits, I, it, I had to put together a, a classic TV themes and the Avengers theme within that because it was just so brilliant. She was also cast as the only Bond girl to get Bond to tie the knot. In which is arguably the best Bond film ever. On a Majesty's Secret Service. It's an amazing Bond film. Dated 
Yes. It was never the box office disappointment that, that history's painted it at. It did remarkably well. It was just a shame that Lazenby had already decided that he didn't want to move on. But yeah. if Connery had been in that role, if Connery had yeah. done on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it would be the film that everyone said, you, you can't touch this and, and you'd have to work really hard. But it's a, it's a damn good Bond film. Apparently they didn't get on. There was bad chemistry between her and Lazenby. But it is the best Bond film. And you're right, she's the one who, who tied the knot with uh, James himself. And in recent years of younger viewers, uh, she's recognisable as playing Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones. And she gave such a spirited performance all the way through. Didn't she? What is great about that performance that she gives is if you've seen, ever seen Diana Rigg in interviews or you've read anything of her, that is her personality. Yes, she yes. is very biting. She is very dryly witty. And she's thoroughly engaging and intelligent in everything she does. So that character, you know, it was as though George R. R. Martin had written the role thinking of her. Absolutely brilliantly put a cast in. And she was absolutely marvellous throughout it. She's had a fantastic innings and she's done some great Absolutely work. stunning run. A straight sad loss. You know, even in recent years, she's popped up in various TV yeah, productions. She's, she's done years of theatre. Can currently be seen on the new BBC adaptation of All Creatures Great and Small, as well as her last appearance will be in next year's Last Night in Soho, the new film by Edgar Wright. Absolutely one of the le legends of Yorkshire. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's a, it is a, it's a terribly sad loss. And, but what a fantastic legacy of work. <laughs> Okay, so um, in other news, Andy, as usual, has been scouring the internet, calling all his contacts in Hollywood, Cricklewood, Anywood, just to try to get the latest news. Andy, what have you got for us in a segment we like to call The News? Let's start with the reshuffling of films. Now, this is something that I'm going to run the risk of going into a rant as we start to talk about this. I'll try and de-rant you if, if, if necessary. This is starting to become quite worrying for people working within the cinema industry. So Wonder Woman 84 has moved from the beginning of October to potentially Christmas Day, they're saying. Oh, really? But we're not so sure that it's going to stick that. Candyman 2, which was due out on October the 16th, has been moved for some time in 2021. That leaves just Death on the Nile for October. Wow. Which cinemas were pressured to reopen for Tenet. Warners yeah. had basically forced cinema's cards and said, look, I know you've got all these government grants keeping you like alive at the moment and you're putting them at risk if you open, but trust us, trust us, we're giving you Tenet and it's going to be amazing. So cinemas then went, okay, we don't need the government grants anymore and we can't reapply for them afterwards, but everything's going to pick up in October, isn't it? And now September and October are both pretty weak. Cinemas are being forced to risk a loss because the industry is still trepidant about releasing something big. Yeah. And at some point, a studio's got to bite the bullet. Something's got to give, as they all say. They've got to bite the bullet and protect cinemas because if they keep pushing back and keep pushing back, there's going to be less cinemas anyway by the time they feel ready to release them and they're not going to do the business that they wanted to anyway. So at some point, they've got to stick the course. Now, at the moment, Disney are still saying that... 
uh, Black Widow will be at the end of October, early November. And Bond is still planned for middle of November. But at this point in time, every week, I'm just expecting more and more bad news. And working within this industry, I can see some cinemas making huge losses at this point in time. It's really sad. And and understandably, from from your point of view, and as as a punter, it's it's really disappointing news. Just when you think that there was a lifeline being thrown, that lifeline's been pulled away uh, and being pulled away, being basically down to down to one film, and that was the, the need to yeah. to uh, get tenant out there. And it feels like the industry's been thrown under under the bus because of it. You know, the hope is that uh, Black Widow will come out, as you said, and, and Bond, and to some extent. Uh, the validation of what's happened with Mulan, which has yeah. underperformed on VOD and underperformed yes. in the Chinese box office. You'd hope that Disney could even at this point salvage that and get that into cinemas. Give it a lot of release. The thing is, Disney severed a lot of ties with cinemas when they pulled that Mulan stunt. The cinema chains are going to turn around if Disney says, well, you can have it now and just say, yeah, well, you're getting 10% Disney and we'll take the other 90%. So they're not going to go for it because... They, they've really soured the waters. Yeah. It's 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 a bad situation. It's a worrying situation. Even the big chains could suffer here. Cineworld, we know about their troubles, but every chain has those small cinemas within the chain that just about break even, but they keep them to keep the market shared, to keep the, the you know, to, to keep just a presence in this area. Yeah. They're the small cinemas that are probably, well, they are, I will confirm that they are opening daily at a loss now. Yeah. And they're the ones that people are going to lose their jobs from. They're the ones that are going to get closed. Yeah, we, we heard a few months ago when the theatre industry was going through similar things. It was like the worries about where they're going to go. Cinemas are now following theatres. Yeah. The cinema industry is at risk of dying. If you care at all about the cinema industry, and I'm putting this passion to play out to anyone who's listening, if you care at all about the theatre cinema experience and you want to see it survive, go and see any films that are released because there are some small, lower-budget films that are coming out under the radar. I, you might not have normally gone for them, but if you want to be able to see the big films when they come out, get to your local cinema that you used to go to and watch as many films as you can. Well Keep said. the cinema industry going. There are films out there. They're not the big blockbusters, but there are films out there. Start using the hashtag Save Our Cinemas. Hashtag Save Our Cinemas and pass it on. We'll be using it on all our all of our uh, uh, information and all our key sites. I just want to tie into that to just say Warner Brothers are also playing quite coy with the box office figures for Tenet. We revealed last week that it did the initial 20 million US box office on its opening weekend. Warners aren't revealing anything since. Which I've heard that I've got a bit of a backlash from the other studios yeah i mean because the other studios were watching with beta breath to see whether or not it was worth releasing their big films because they're not re- reporting it the other studios are like well um what do we do and this is not going to help warner's doing this is again not going to help the cinema industry because it's going to leave the other distributors skeptical about releasing it's just upsetting that even things like candyman 2 which isn't a huge budget film that could well and truly profit in this environment it's, and that's been moved. We said this last week, Andy, and I'm I'm absolutely think it's the right right way forward. Instead of worrying that your movie has got to make twenty million dollars in, in its opening yeah. weekend, is just just recalculate and say it's gonna make twenty million dollars on its release and just let it linger there, let it stay out a little bit longer, let it find its audience, let people feel as though they're confident to come back and not to worry about, you know, it's People aren't going in the opening weekend. That's the way things are now. People aren't going out in the opening weekend. 
they will they will trickle through keep cinemas uh, alive by keeping the picture the picture in, in the cinema much longer and not worrying about pulling it or thinking it's not gonna it's gonna yeah. make a turn a profit so if wonder woman 84 does move to christmas that's going to place it head to head with warner brothers's other film which is June, which has finally got the trailer, which I I expect you have seen already. I have. And you know what? I was yep. giddy. I was a giddy boy when I saw it. I'm not a massive Dune fan. I've never read the books. My Dune is a comics adaptation and the David Lynch movie. And I want to yeah. come back to the David Lynch movie in a second. But I thought it looked fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's visually beautiful. The cast look really committed and really amazing. In the Lynch movie, he was, it was very much an adult Paul Atreides. But Chalamet, I think, is a better Paul Atreides because in the books, he's only like 14 years old. Right. So he's supposed to be a young teenager. And he's got that more youthful looks. I cannot be more excited for any film. And I'm expecting it to get shifted to next year because no way Warner's going to pit two of their tentpole movies against each other over Christmas. If I have to wait, as long as something comes out to keep the, business, the industry running, I'll be happy. Do you think it's going to find its uh, going to find its audience a, a little bit? And I'm thinking along the lines of John Carter. Now, everything borrowed from John Carter, as did Star Wars in, in the Tatooine scenes with, with from Dune. Do you think it will still find an audience? Do you think that... Um, there are enough fans of Frank Herbert's adaptation. I think that the star power involved will draw in the people that John Carter didn't, because John Carter didn't really have the presence of so many names. It also wasn't a good movie. It wasn't a I bad got movie. Some, it's okay. It's, it's pulp sci-fi, like it's supposed to be. This, uh, the problem is that um, Villeneuve's films always cost a lot, look absolutely great, have an audience, but not enough of an audience. And it's bizarre that he keeps getting money, but I'm glad that he does because he's, he's delivering these great films. Um, but you look at the cast lineup in this one and there's something for everyone within there. So I think that that star power will at least intrigue people enough to come and see this. What what looks to the outsider as a potentially generic sci-fi? Yeah, but it's got scope. I mean, I noticed one thing from the trailers. Everything was nice, big, wide shots where... Yeah. You got to see the world in almost in, in, in every every shot. You got to see the detail, you got to see the the depth of, of creativity on display. Interestingly enough, and I sent you this clip last night, was uh how closely it feels like David Lynch's movie. Yeah, there's some clear inspiration of the looks that Lynch's film brought in. Because like as much criticism as it can get thrown at Lynch's film. It looked great. Oh, yeah, it was spectacular. It changed some of the styles for, which were described in the books to something different, but it, it, it did it in a way that kind of worked, and it became like the, the perfect imagery. Even the video games that followed drew the style from Lynch's film. So I'm, I'm fine with the look because I think Lynch's film created a great vision. If you get a chance to check it out, it's on, uh, it's on YouTube, and it's a comparison uh, with the trailer with, with the shots that Lynch uses. Uh, and apparently Frank Herbert was a massive fan. He, he actually he loved yeah. David Lynch's film. And so they've gone for a style. They've gone for a style in the, definitely in the trailer, which almost matches the original trailer. And interesting enough, Jedowski, who was originally going to make Dune back in the 70s, I think he was going to direct, and then Ridley Scott was connected to it for a long time, wanted to use the music of Pink Floyd on the soundtrack, wanted them <laughs> to do the soundtrack. So it, that's why the Dune trailer has Pink Floyd on it. So yeah. Bravo, I think it looks it looks amazing, looks spectacular. He just has a way of shooting films that feel very ordinary in a very spectacular kind of way. And I, th yeah. I felt that with Arrival and I felt that with Blade Runner. 
he, he takes you into a world and, and makes it feel as though it's the world around you, even though it's it's on a different planet or it's in the future or it's in a, a science fiction setting. I think that's one of the skills that he has. It's almost everything is downplayed that it feels real and, and therefore you kind of get over the science fiction stuff very, very quickly and get into the reality of it. So can't wait. I hope we get to see that at Christmas. That would mean that Wonder Woman opens one week after after June. Yeah. But I certainly can't wait. Moving on. And we've spoken about Screen 5 a good few times and how they've been trying to get some of the originals back. We'd already mentioned that Courtney Cox and David Arquette were back on board. Neve Campbell has now been confirmed. Oh, that's good. Finalising the original trio. The rest of the cast is padded out with people like Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Dylan Minnette. Mason Gooding, Kyle Gallner, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Nikki Madison, and Marley Shelton. Now, what I want to see, what I, I'd love to see, is that the original trio are brought back to be killed off at very early on, much in the same way that the big name that was cast in the very first screen was chopped in the opening scene. <laughs> That'd be good. Bring, the, bring them back, but in a way that it hands over the whole screen franchise to a different cast. And the best way to do it for a screen film would be at least one of them. At least, at least kill one of them. I, I don't care which. <laughs> I sound sadistic now. <laughs> yeah, you do. You, you want um, have you seen the news that Michelle Rodriguez has confirmed the rumours that Fast and Furious 9 is going to see the gang hit space? Yeah. And, and you know, nothing actually surprises me with the Fast series anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's defied physics. It's <laughs> defied uh, expectation to a degree. So it's always been a bit of a joke, hasn't it, that eventually it will end up in space. And it got kind of hinted at with Hobbs and Shaw that they were going in this more science fiction kind of route. <laughs> so that's, uh, if you're a Fast and Furious fan, you know, which I'm not. I'm really I, not. I know you like them. I, I can tell you, I, mean, I enjoyed, loved the first one. I grew tired of them for the next few films, but I've come to embrace them for their simple dumb fun for the past few films. So I'm expecting just dumb fun. I don't expect anything intelligent. If you'd have told me when I when I watched the first film came out and I watched it and loved it, oh yeah, later on in the franchise they're going to go into space. I'd have laughed. But no, it's happening. And I'm sure that after this one, they'll then be going, like the next one, we're going into a black hole and time travelling. And then uh, they'll be uh, reversing time in a Tenet kind of way. Uh, who or knows? they'll be doing like the Avengers Endgame and they'll be going back and dealing <laughs> with their own bits of history to prove that you can defy the laws of physics. Yep. So absolutely bonkers stuff. I'm quite looking forward to it. For other sci-fi bonkers stuff, how about McGee, who's responsible for that um, remember when the terminator franchise was getting rebooted with a new trilogy um, yes. with salvation and then we never got the trilogy out of it well mcgee is now jumping on the i've got a cut bandwagon he's, <laughs> when he's did been, that start who knows i don't know there's, there's some weird director out there who had a movement speaking recently with comic book resources the director said that the film that was supposed to start a new trilogy and he said of it there's a different cut I have my own cut of that film, and there's people online that talk about wanting to see that cut. Obviously, I think jo Jonah Nolan, the screenwriter, is very, very serious writer, and he did the best he could. Maybe that's the cut of, of the movie I have hidden away, and that's the answer. It's darker. I don't know. That's for fans to say. You know what? I'm not going to. I'm not going to suggest for a moment that Terminator Salvation is is a is a work of genius. But in the subsequent sequels, it is my favourite of the sequels. Well, yeah, I mean, that, it goes without saying that it's the, it's the best of the worst. <laughs> it's the best of the worst. But it, it, was, it was unfortunately even more confusing by the fact that they ended up casting Christian Bale. And once they cast Christian Bale in, in the John Connor role, it wasn't supposed to be a big part from, from what no. I hear. And that threw it out and threw the tilt of the movie, which would have been more around one character rather than having to 
of having to make uh, Christian Bale do an awful lot because it was a big star. I liked the idea of Terminator Salvation because finally, after three films, it then showed us this future war and it moved it ahead in time to show like that aspect of it. But something definitely went wrong. Do we want a, a McGee cut though? I'm not, no. We've spoken multiple times about how I feel about this release, the cuts, and where it eventually leads to that if people don't like a film, then they'll just insist that there's another cut out there that they want to start a campaign. Hashtag please don't release the McGee cut. (laughs) Not because it wouldn't be interesting, but because the precedent has already been set and we don't want it to be cemented. Moving on. Let's move on to something a little lighter. And for lightness, uh, Happy Death Day franchise. Yeah, well, I saw the first one. I think the first one was great. There was no reason for me to relive, see what I did there, uh, <laughs> the second film. But I thought the first one was 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 uh, fun. It, it played with the trope and made it made it interesting. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It wiled away an hour and a half and, and made me smile all the way through. And I thought it was a, a clever idea. The second one worked a lot better than I was expecting it to. I was okay. worried that it'd just be retreading the same thing and it kind of does but it knows it does and so it plays around that idea and it adds in other time like you know why why this time effect is taking place and tries to like work into it well apparently a happy death day three has a title and the director christopher landon has given an update okay while the film hasn't been greenlit yet he's confirmed he's already penned it out and that jason bloom from bloom house and jessica roth who starred in both the films are both very passionate about it getting made at some point however this film is going to focus on a different day it's going to be set later whereas the first two films had to be filmed quite close together because they are taking place over the same events this is going to move forward so it means that there's no pressure to keep the cast looking the same age so they can be a bit more relaxed about when they get around to making it and the title that they've got at the moment is happy death day to us which suggests multiple people people repeating multiple events i'm Thanks, intrigued I, yeah i might I, on your recommendation i might go and see uh, happy death day uh, to you i'm thoroughly intrigued and i'll be i'll be sign, signing up to watch it when it finally gets made if it finally gets made now one thing that i've got my eye on as well and you know how much i love me westerns yes well we're both big western fans aren't we well there's a western called the harder they fall which is being casting at the moment uh, it's getting directed by james samuel and it's an all black western and the lineup now, sit back as I go through these names. Okay. So you've got Jonathan Majors, who's currently shining in Lovecraft Country. Oh, yeah. He's, he's playing an outlaw who discovers that the man who killed his parents, played by Idris Elba, is being released from prison. Reuniting with his gang, he sets off to get revenge. And the gang includes people such as Regina King from Watchmen. She was fantastic in Watchmen. Lakeith Stanfield, Knives Out. Yeah. Zazy Beats from Deadpool 2. Delroy Lindo, The Five Bloods. Oh, Laz Alonso, The Boys. Edai Hathagi, X-Men First Class, and R.K. Siler, uh, Power Rangers. Let's ignore that one. That lineup on its own is enough to make me need to see this film. Well, you had me on Western, and Revisionist yeah. Western even more so. As a, as a film fan of the 70s, when, is when they went out and they did Revisionist Westerns and, and changed it about. And that's what I always think when they miss the boat with a lot of Westerns nowadays, is you can do so much with it. it it's, it's like science fiction. It's a genre that can... Uh, can talk about the ethics of today in in that setting. And I think, you know, fantastic. I can't wait. I, I'm always up for a good Western with a cast like that. Yeah, count me in. Absolutely brilliant lineup. So that's the harder they fall, hopefully going into production pretty soon. Another thing that might go into production soon, way before the Fox and Disney merger, there was talks of a prequel to The Omen. Yeah, there have always been talks of a 
uh, anything to do that you can recon or reboot in some way the omen what have we got this time well apparently it's still got some life left in the project and the stirrings that the project may be greenlit by disney at some point to go under their fox pictures umbrella as for the plot no one's got any idea but given that the omen literally starts off with the birth of damien we can only assume that this will be a tale of how a woman came to sleep with a jackal so i'm expecting something similar to rosemary's baby only with a dog (laughs) (laughs) there's the plot if um, the movie comes out i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna go back listen to this episode and see how close you were to to (laughs) nailing that one rosemary's baby with a dog that's my prediction of what this film's gonna be Uh, another prequel series now this is one that i've got some interest in and there's a tv series prequel being pitched for robocop now before you move on on this one yep before you move on i I know what the premise of this is and are we buying it i i think it would be an interesting take i think they're going down the gotham route when gotham was pitched everyone straight away went gotham without batman what's the point in that and turns out it was actually quite a good point because it was to show this environment that needed the goth- needed the Batman. Now, for the prequel series to RoboCop, it's got to focus on the rise of Dick Jones. Ed Numier is working with MGM on the idea for the series, so you've got some credentials the from writers, the original yeah. writers. And the series aims to show how Detroit fell into corruption and ruin, engineered by OCP and their plans for Delta City. Now, what you have to realise from RoboCop is there's already... The, the Ed 209 was already a military unit, and it was just getting ca- moved over to the streets you to assume that there's also other drones and everything already in place. So it's not just going to be a cop drama series. It's going to be a sci-fi-based corporation corruption. It could drama be the sci-fi equivalent of Succession. Yes. But no RoboCop. But no RoboCop. We won't get so, to see RoboCop. But you know what? I, I could be fine with it because how Gotham turned out gives me some confidence that these kind of ideas can work. But Gotham had a legacy of characters where you would talk to most people who saw RoboCop and they'd go, hey, who, do you, were you a big fan of Dick Jones? And they'll go, oh, uh, which one was he? Was he the guy who, who got all gooey and died? No, how, no, Dick Jones. How did Dick Jones become so closely associated with someone like Clavence Bodica? Yeah, I mean, I think that all the points are there. And if it's done well, of course, we always yeah. say this. If it's done well, then it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a more of a hard sell than it is, say, Gotham, because Gotham, you know, everybody kind of knows who Commissioner Gordon is. The Penguin was in there. You know, um, there were hints of, there was Alfred was in there. There were hints of the, of the Batman story as it, as it went through. Just a RoboCop series without RoboCop, I, you know. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, all we can do is wait and see. Having, having Ed Numier on board definitely gives it some credential and some potential. Have you seen the trailer that got released today of Trial of the Chicago 7, Sorkin's Netflix film? You know, I haven't. I didn't know it was out today. And uh, anything by Sorkin is, is a must for me. I just can listen to his his dialogue and, until the cows come home. I just think he's a fantastic writer. Absolutely. And with this being heavily a courtroom drama, you know, it's ideal territory for Sorkin's style. Well, the film, as we've discussed in the past, focuses on the true story of the riots in 1968 near the Democratic Convention in Chicago and the trials that followed. The stars of the film include names such as Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Jeremy Strong, Frank Langella, Michael Keaton, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Mark Rylance, Kelvin Harrison Jr., J.C. McKenzie. Wow, fantastic cast. Absolutely brilliant cast. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is owning this year, as far as I'm concerned. And it's targeting the political conspiracies that are at play around the events. And it, from the trailer, it looks as politically charged as you expect from Sorkin. 
with a huge dose of relevancy to the world we live in today. Well, I know that Netflix bought the rights back from Paramount earlier this year or in the middle of this year. And I know they were targeting initially a September release date. What? When do we get to see it? October the 16th. Fantastic. Well, I'll be there for that one. I'm a massive fan of Sorkin. I'm looking forward to he's getting the cast back together from West Wing. I don't know whether yes. it's to do a, a table read or, or whatever, but do like the idea of him getting the cast back for West Wing in these days more than ever. That was such a good series. Kind of related to that. So Sasha Baron Cohen, we're going to be seeing in there, but we might also see him elsewhere. Yeah, well, this is this has been a lot of rumours going around on, the, on, on Twitter, um, all over the place, that thought they'd seen Sasha Baron Cohen as Borat. Driving a yellow pickup truck. Driving around a pickup truck. Well, latest reports, apparently, yes, he was doing it. Yes, he was getting filmed for it. And the whole film for the Borat sequel is now in the can and has already had a test screening. You see, that's the only way you can do Borat. It's the only way to do his sort of films is not to tell anybody that they're out shooting. And therefore, It's it's all about catching people off guard, isn't it? Catching people off guard, exactly. So apparently all the film needs now is a distribution. It's. It looks like it's been surreptitiously filmed and funded by Baron Cohen and some private enterprises himself. So it just needs a distributor. I suspect we will see some more information on this in the coming weeks and we'll get some confirmation as soon as we can. It's interesting now because I think the time of Borrow, which is not that long ago in the scheme of things, what, 10 years since it came out, 11 years? Yeah. Um, it's almost now you wouldn't expect that to get a movie release, a cinema release. You would expect it to go straight to a Netflix or uh, an Amazon. And it would seem to feel more at home these days than than in a, in a theatre, don't, don't yeah. you think? I think that it doesn't quite have the cinematic appeal, but then again, we need anything for cinematic appeal these days. So, the classic film that I was given last week by yourself, can you remember what you gave me? Oh, probably not. A week's passed since then. <laughs> uh, Brief Encounter. Yes. The David Lean film adapted from the Noel Coward story, which is about two middle-aged strangers who meet in a railway cafe, find a connection and consider having uh, extramarital affairs. And it follows, uh, it primarily follows Celia Johnson's lead character as she struggles with whether she can commit herself to an affair or not by these small encounters with him in the railway cafe and then going out to the movies to watch a film, etc, etc. And this is a film that on paper I would look at and go, eh, I'm a bothered. But I I was drawn. I was absolutely drawn to it. I think there's something about Lean's direction that helps a lot. The railway setting, the use of an actual railway station as well to keep it busy and to keep it active works a treat. The black and white photography is absolutely beautiful. I mean, we all know that David Lean could could focus a shot, but it's that had has so much into it. It, it becomes, I mean, as you talk about the station becoming a, a character within the film, yep. it's... The photography as well that, that sort of draws you into it. The, it, it wouldn't work as a, as a colour movie. The story is slight, but it's engaging enough because of the star performances from Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. Absolutely riveting conversations between them. Absolutely believable chemistry. And like you say, the station itself has its own character, either from like the, the traffic going through it, but also the inhabitants of it. Stanley Holloway is the ticket inspector, Albert, and his flirting with Joyce Curry as the cafe owner, Myrtle, which shows a different kind of love romance to the lead couple. The lead couple having their illicit romance that they can't have, and these two flirting with each other as they're building a relationship in the same age bracket. Absolutely, some great choices in there, including the, the closing moments, leaving the ambiguity 
as to whether Laura's husband, Fred, played by Cyril Redmond, actually knew of the affair. But it leaves no doubt that he would overlook any misgivings that she did because he loves her so much and he's just glad to have her in his life. Absolutely beautiful film. I, I absolutely, absolutely enjoyed it. It's stunningly British, isn't it? I mean, when everyone refers to the term stiff upper lip and crying through a stiff upper lip, this is what... This is what, unfortunately, <laughs> it comes to mind when you watch this film. And, and that repression in, in, in this relationship makes it a harder watch because you, you want them to break out. Um, I found I had the same feeling with Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep in Bridges of Madison County. Yes. It was that repressed love affair, which, which almost makes it, makes it difficult to watch at times. My dabbles with lean on film have been, well, for want of a better word, lean. And there's large chunks of his catalogue that I've still left to explore. Every time that I find a new one that I've not seen, I know immediately that I want to see the rest of his catalogue. And thankfully, I've got about another five or six of his sat to one side, ready to work through. Well worth seeing. Okay, so that was Brief Encounter, and an absolute classic, beautiful film, beautifully acted. It was one of those films that uh, was nominated for Best Director, Best Actress, Best Screenplay at the 1947 Academy Awards. It's considered to be one of the... 10 greatest films ever made uh, and in the top 100 films uh, uh, British films ever created so I'm glad you got to see it because those sorts of films now are while they do feel sort of passe they are a large part of our British cinema history yeah. uh, and important to 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 go back and revisit because they are so still so influential on, on a lot of the films that we watch I know it's being parodied to death and, and we were trying to remember if there'd been a some sort of an american remake there'd been a tv remake with sophia loren and richard burton that wasn't pretty well received but it's just a beautiful beautiful film and and it's the simplicity of it that, that makes it work that makes it a, an absolute classic okay for next week i thought i'd cheer you up because i you could see you blubbing into your hanky um, <laughs> while watching brief encounter i'm going to give you uh, a woody allen film because interestingly enough we've not touched any woody allen throughout this run so let's have a look at Hannah and Her Sisters by Woody Allen. I've got that DVD sat to the side, ready to pop into my drive later. Shall I see you again? It's the other platform, isn't it? We have to run. Don't bother about me. It might not do for a few minutes. Shall I see you again? Yes, of course. Perhaps we'll come out to catch with one Sunday. It's rather far, I know, but we should be delighted. Please, please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. No, I couldn't possibly. Please, I ask you. Most humbly. You miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. So, if you're enjoying the episode, and why not? There's no reason for you not to be. Please recommend it to your friends. Hit the subscribe button because we need all the subscriptions we can get. And, and and tell all your friends. Tell everybody to join into the film file wagon of fun because, hey, we're doing it because we love movies and we love being geeks. Is that right, Andy? You love being a geek? I have a lot of love being a geek. The geeks shall inherit the earth. That's right. <laughs> so if you uh, you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Filmfile UK. And if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can find us at Filmfile UK. So you start to see a theme there, don't you? <laughs> keep it simple. <laughs> we always keep it simple. Keep it as simple as we can because we're those kind of guys. Uh, it's always good to hear from you. And uh, we look forward to bringing the show because you know what? We love doing it. So over the last couple of weeks, we've uh, we started reviewing. We reviewed Tenant, we reviewed New Mutants. And of course, as Andy's mentioned, there's been a lull 
Uh, and one of the things we didn't do during lockdown is we didn't really pay much attention to to Netflix or Amazon or any of the other streaming services. But with the way that things are turning out, we're going to make a fresh new look at stuff that you can find interesting on one of those streaming services. So, Andy, what have we got coming up over the next couple of weeks that's worth watching uh, is on your to-do list for Netflix? Well, over this next week in particular, there's The Devil All the Time, which is the Tom Holland and Robert Patterson uh, psychological thriller. That lands this week. Sadly, it lands in a couple of days' time. So we were hoping to be able to get to watch it before today. But we'll no doubt talk about it next week because we're both quite looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bill Skarsgård's in there, Sebastian Stan. It's got a great cast lineup. Tom Holland is a great, great young, fresh actor. Yeah, he's always he's somebody to watch. I mean, everything he's done, he, he brings something different to it. I, you know, you can't believe for, for such a young age, he's got that amount of, of work under his belt so far. And uh, he is still the perfect Peter Parker as well. And for our main chunk of reviews today, uh, we've got a selection of Netflix films that have recently landed that are worth checking out as well. I'm really interested to see what Andy's going to make of this. We were both tasked with viewing the latest Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection, a rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. I think of ending things. Hello? We're here. So, I think this is the story. <laughs> might give you some indication to, to where this review is going. Uh, a young woman played wonderfully by Jesse Buckley embarks on a wintry road trip with her new boyfriend, uh, played by the great Jesse Plemons, to meet his parents, uh, David Thewlis and Tony Collette, uh, for the first time, while she's considering ending this relationship. But when they arrive, her grip on reality begins to falter and small changes of reality start to happen around her. Do you think that's about a fair assumption of what the story is about, Andy? Yeah, I think that's about as far as you can actually uh, describe it without spoiling it, to be honest. Because, like you say, it, it, it starts off as a film looking at the breakdown of a happy love. And the early moments of the film, you're drawn into her mind as she's thinking through where she is in that relationship and why she wants to get out. And then and then there's there's little continuity errors. There's little, also, we think. There's little editing glitches. There's, there's the fact that occasionally a character's name changes, that you start to think, who put this film together? But then as the film progresses, things become more and more hallucinatory and almost dreamlike in nature. And this is a film that all hinges around the end. And it's one of those endings of a film that once you watch it, everything gets thrown into a different context. And for me... It's left it left me thinking about it since, and I want to go back and re-explore it now and know what the outcome was. Yeah, I mean, it's based on the novel by Ian Reid, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And a little bit like when Charlie Kaufman did an uh, adaptation, it becomes a very meta, very multi-layered story, which goes in directions that you'd never think it's going to go in on a completely 
completely having the, the the rug pulled out of you, literally within a scene, let alone within within the course of the story. So for me, the, the upside of it is both Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley were absolutely fantastic in it. Yes. I've seen uh, Jesse Plemons grow as an actor through you know, Breaking Bad, Fargo. Just every time we see him, he, he just gets a stronger actor. Uh, it was fantastic in Black Mirror. He's gone from being a sort of... Um, a minor C-list role. Yeah, he's sort of gone from being a young-looking Matt Damon into an actor of his own right and yeah. in his own worth and, uh, and fantastic. I'm not familiar with Jesse Buckley's work at all, but she was just fantastic. And to help keep this sort of uh, strange meta-film in place, she's just the heart of it. Uh, and it turns out, well, I won't go there. <laughs> I know it deviates a lot, and I've never read the book, but I've heard it deviates an awful lot from the book, especially in The Last Act. And The Last Act is, is where I had the most problems with. I also had, had some problems with uh, David Thewlis constantly cutting carrots, which I thought was a, a, as an error, but didn't seem to seem to be. <laughs> uh, and completely threw me out of the film. I really wanted to like this, but I found myself getting frustrated by it in a way that I think that Kaufman works better when he's directed by somebody else. I, I can't give enough praise for um, you know, being John, John Malkovich, but if uh, adaptation and especially and because I, I think it's a work of genius eternal sunshine of the spotless mind but because i think that works because he has a, has a really strong director who shares an affinity to his worldview but brings the elements that as a director kaufman doesn't have uh, a, a michael gondry or a, a spike johns just just add more onto the plate than, than kaufman does as a director for me i was left wanting to like it i was left in all that this film got made, and it's the sort of film that that we that we applaud that gets made that, that will test you as a, as a narrative. But I can't say that I walked away and, and that I, I liked it. There were elements that the heart of the film it it just it, it it seemed to lose track of what the heart of the film is in certain places for me. For me, I'm almost the complete opposite. I mean, I know that you mentioned about the book. The book apparently is a more linear structure. It just heads forward in time and you get to the end and that reveals everything that was taking place from a different perspective. Whereas the film is very metaphysical. It's it's weaving backwards and forwards and like playing with the the conventions and the ideas. And for me, the, whereas like as great as films like Adaptation were, and I absolutely love the fact that when he came to write that script, he adapted an unadaptable book by writing a script about himself adapting an unadaptable book. I, yeah, I think he's a very clever screenwriter, but I've loved what he's done since he's been let off the leash and allowed to bring what he sees as a writer to the screen himself. I adore Eternal Sunshine of the Spot Spotless Mind. I adore being John Malkovich, I, everything that he's been involved with, with other directors, I have absolutely loved. But I love that he's got such a unique approach to filmmaking that for me, I was hooked all the way through. The dialogue exchanges, the, the complexities of characters going on, the weaving of all the different visuals that were going on in the farmhouse. And then to get to the final reveal and make you go, oh, I need to reconsider what I've just watched. For me, that is, it was just a work of absolute beautiful genius. This, this is the kind of film that I can just get lost in. And I, I, can see my, I can see this becoming one of my, I'm going back to rewatch this over and over again kind of films. Because it just had that, it had that compulsive draw for me. Um, you, you were spot on by saying Jesse Plimmons is, I mean, he's on a career best in this. 
he's always been kind Cassidy of like ones. he's been kind of pushed to the sidelines in other roles, but here he really gets a chance to showcase front and center. But Jessie Buckley, she's the absolute star, charming, witty, engaging. She's mesmerizing presence on screen. I, I can't fault the cast at all. I think they're excellent. The the, the problem I, I have with it that it, it feels like a riddle that's not meant to ever be solved. <laughs> and, and, and what comes to mind is, is that sense that that sense of hopelessness about it, which I, I, I found myself at odds with. But as I did say, it, it, it is a complex film. I think it, at some point it wants to be a, a, an unsettling sort of psychological horror. I don't think it is. There's too many points in it where people stand and talk for too long and I didn't feel it was moving the, the film forward. In, in any way but i do what i do recommend about it is if you if you want something that isn't mainstream cinema and you want to see charlie kaufman do something that is that he's absolutely unique then there are places in the cinema still for, for those sorts of voices this is what's one of the great things about netflix is is that these kind of voices can get can get an outlet netflix we've mentioned before are fantastic for allowing filmmakers to bring their unique visions to the screen without interference. And so this week, as well as I'm thinking of ending things, which gets a big thumbs up recommendation for me. Is it one thumb up from you? Yeah, kind of wavering. I thought it was uh, I thought it was original. I thought it was Kaufman bonkers as it should have been. I just found it bewildering and utterly at the end of it bleak. But as well as that, we've we've both been diving into a few other things online which have been capturing our attention. Um, I'll start with there's a zo- zombie films which never go out of fashion and Korean Can't go zombies. Wrong with a bit of dead. Co- Korean zombies are definitely on the rise with Train to Busan launching this whole new way of doing it and Peninsula, which is out there somewhere, but I've not had a chance to see. But there's one on Netflix which landed called Hashtag Alive, which I went into it expecting just the typical generic zombie franchise. And I found something a bit more personal in nature. It's uh, focused on a character called Jun Woo, who spends his days video game live streaming in the apartment where he lives with his parents and sister. However, one day as he's left alone in the apartment, what do you know? The zombie apocalypse breaks out. As it will, (laughs) as it is. So he barricades himself in the flat and posts out a distress message online before the internet goes down and phone signals get weak. And it's the first two thirds of the film is him in that location and how he's trying not to go stir crazy and how he's trying to survive within this lockdown situation, which is quite unique. Um, we've, never, we've never heard of a lockdown situation. There's there's things like, as the phone signals get weak, in order to get a signal, he has to basically use a, a selfie stick in the most daring way that I've ever seen on film. And then he spots someone alive on the opposite tower block. And it's as the relationship between those two starts to build, it brings a different aspect to the film. And yes, the final act of the film becomes generic zombie film. But by that point, I was completely engaged in the characters that we've been stuck with, that I was willing to accept the formulaic aspect that wound it all up. Great use of technology in there, because whenever you watch a zombie film now, you can't help but think, everyone's got a mobile phone, why don't you talk to each other? Eh, why aren't you using this? Why aren't you using that? So he uses drones to zoom around like and survey Excellent. areas and things like that. There's the access to the internet to try to get messages out. Everything feels more up-to-date, and it knows the conventions that the genre uses, and it plays them back in a different way. Thoroughly recommended. Hashtag alive. Okay, mine is a crime drama, thriller, horror. And to give you too much information would, would give the game away, because this is a film about a sleight of hand. It's called I See You. It stars Helen Hunt, and it's about the strange occurrences that plague a small-town detective 
and his family as he investigates the disappearance of a young boy. It's one of those I'd like to tell you more, but as soon as I do and take you down the rabbit hole of it, then it'll just give, give the game away. It's one of those which is just cleverly thought out. And it's a story that takes two perspectives. Again, I'm not going to tell you what those two perspectives are, because once I do, it gives it gives away the plot. But it's just to say that it's, it's it was nice and refreshing to see what is essentially um, a, a low budget thriller. It's not particularly flashy. It's it's really well directed by uh, Adam Randall. I've never seen any of his work before, and it's it's it works because it offers not only good suspense but he does a, a pretty damn good job with misdirection and, and, and moments which suddenly have, as the story unfolds, have clarity as to why characters did and didn't do and it, and that joy of the unreliable narrator, for, for want of a better term. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It's not going to win any awards, but if you want to see something a little bit different as, as a thriller, drama, horror film, then this is the film for you. And it's always good to see Helen Hunt back on the screen because she is a class act. Well, I've also seen um, Babysitter Killer Queen this week. Okay. I never saw the first Babysitter film. With the first Babysitter film, I saw the name McG, and we mentioned him in the news, and I sounded a bit like off about him. And I saw his name attached on the first film, and I thought, oh, really? And I watched the film, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a huge surprise. Um, It was a comedy horror about a young teenage boy named Cole, who is definitely too old to have a babysitter, but his mum and dad thinks that he still needs one, and so gives him Samara Weaving as um, the babysitter. Ooh, and who wouldn't want her as a babysitter? Steady on there. The wife might be listening. And she turns out to be part of a devil-worshipping cult who are doing a ritual sacrifice that night in order to get eternal life. And it was a great comedy horror. It, was, it played with the conventions of the genre, and it had fun with it. It played with all your scream, kind of like set-in-one-house approaches. Well, the sequel landed, and I thought, oh, do we really need a sequel to it? Oh, McGee's still involved, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> Set a few years later, Cole is now in junior high school, and everyone thinks he's crazy because all the bodies of the cultists vanished mysteriously after the events of the last film, as did the babysitter herself. And he's become a social outcast as a result, his only friend being his next-door neighbour, Melanie, played by Emily Allen Lind, who believes his story. Melanie and her current boyfriend, Jimmy, invite Cole along to a lake party to help him become more accepted with the gang. But it soon appears that there's other things going on, including the resummoned bodies of the cultists of the first film. Now, I said that the first film played nicely on the housebound horrors such as Elm Street, Scream, etc. This one clearly shows a love for the Friday the 13th uh, lake camps horrors. And it has so much fun playing cliche after cliche for lovingly mocking reasons. Absolutely enjoyable, complete throwaway nonsense but some great moments that keep you laughing out loud. That's what a comedy horror should do. It should have fun. It should be bloody, but it should make you laugh out loud at points. Good diversion. We mentioned coming very soon, in fact, September the 16th, The Devil All the Time. I'm interested to watch Ratchet. I know you are not as sounding as keen. It's set during the late 40s at an asylum where Nurse Mildred has just landed a job at an institution that's conducting experiments on the human mind. It's brought to you... uh, by Ryan Murphy, and it's and it's the reboot of the classic villain of Nurse Ratched, who you remember from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. The reviews are in for it and are sounding pretty good. It's sounding very, very Ryan Murphy, so as long as you're a Ryan Murphy fan, I think you've, uh, um, you you know what you're going to be in for, and, yeah. and it's been described as being closer to Nip Tuck than it is to American Horror Story. But the reason I'll, I'll be interested in it is it's... Uh, the, the role of Ratchet is played by Sarah Paulson, and Sarah Paulson, for me, just can't do any wrong. She's played every conceivable role, and whatever she's in, she's just fantastic. 
Um, so for me, that will that will be an opportunity to watch it based on that. Alongside that, we've also, for those people who are still interested in the Jurassic World franchise, the animated series from DreamWorks lands this weekend, uh, Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. It's It doesn't appeal to me, but the kids are going to lap this up. And, and talking of kiddies, there's a series by Guillermo del Toro, which is into its third season. And I was just talking to Andy off the air about it and gushing about it. My kid watches it. Uh, and I secretly try to join him to watch it, and that's Troll Hunters. As I said, it's written by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I believe originally it was there to be a, a feature film, but it's expanded into this series, and it's it's beautifully animated, and it's about a kid who discovers he's, he's a human troll hunter. Uh, it, it seems like a, a cousin to Hellboy, uh, a slight cousin to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but it's so intricate, and it's so well done, and over each three series, each each... Each of the individual series picks another aspect of the town to explore uh, to, uh, to eventually there's a, a war of the wizards. And it's so well done. Uh, captivating. If you've read comic books all your life, then it, it makes absolutely utter sense. But it looks fantastic. A couple of films that are on my radar, even though I don't know a huge amount about them. They've just caught my eye. So you've got a Spanish thriller called The Paramedic Lands on Netflix this week. And you've also okay. got a film called Residue, which is an indie movie about a young filmmaker returning home and writing a script about his childhood. And they're the kind of low-key films that kind of catch my attention from time to time. So there's always something new coming out. There's always something on Netflix. And we've said that going forward, what we're going to do is just have a look ahead each on a weekly basis of what's coming to home streaming that is possibly worth keeping an eye on. Okay, well, that's about it for this week. But before we go, I just want to mention a big thanks to our sponsor, the Original Devil T-Shirt Company. And if you want to purchase one of these fine garments, and you should because they are a classic-looking T-shirt, very well made, both Andy and I are sporting one. Well, I'm sporting one right now. Uh, you can get 10% off your first order just by giving this code. FilmFile2020. So just head over to devilt-shirt.com and make that order. And trust me, just let a little devil into your life. And they might even need an exorcist. So we'll get around to that next week with a guide to where to find your local Well, exorcist. it'll be very comfortable to exercise in. <laughs> I see what you did there. Hey. Very good. So <laughs> before we leave, uh, Andy and I will always uh, talk about the thing that we've been watching, enjoying, playing, reading, just having a neat thing in our life. Andy, what's been your neat thing over the last week? So my neat thing ties in to what we had at the head of the episode. I've spoken about BritBox before. I've spoken yeah. about the things that they keep dropping and they've dropped more stuff. And over the past week, they've not only dropped Blake 7, but they've also dropped a, f a few seasons of The Avengers. And in particular, wow. they've dropped season four and season five, which were the two seasons with Diana Rigg as Emma Peel. And I've been immersing myself in the absolute joy of this show over again. It's quintessentially British. Quintessentially 60s as well. Definitely. It's fun. It's quirky, it's daft at times, but it's the chemistry between Patrick McNee and Diana Rigg that made these two seasons the defining era of the show. It's on BritBox. If you've never signed up to BritBox, do the trial, do yourself a favour, immerse yourself in the Avengers. Okay, uh, when I started with my neat thing, I was very defined. To, I was going to be talking about uh, The Boys season two. I'm going to skip the boys and come back to that later, but I'm going to tell you about a series and you can get it on Apple. Uh, you can get it through uh, Amazon Prime and that's a DC adaptation of the Doom Patrol. 
So the Doom Patrol is uh, follows. It's it's not that far removed from the wackiness of say the Umbrella Academy as a, as opposed to being an X Men. So it follows the unlikely heroes of this eponymous team, who've all received their powers through some sort of tragic circumstances and therefore are shunned by society. Uh, most of the members were treated by the chief, played by Timothy Dalton, uh, a medical doctor who gave them their residence in his mansion to help protect them from the, the outside world. And their name derives from an earlier Doom Patrol team that was formed by the chief. So if you've ever read the Doom Patrol, it originally started out in the 60s and, and ran alongside with a lot of similarities to the X-Men. Never really took off, but then it got brought back several times. And then Grant Morrison took a stab at it and took it down. Well, he, he Grant Morrison did. Uh, <laughs> and, and it became wild and weird and wacky. And it's very much based on that. I'm only a few episodes in and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It was part of the now uh, long forgotten uh, DC subscription thing, which is a shame that it's gone. But I, I gather it's just been announced it's getting a season three. And that season three is now going to HBO Max. So I don't know where we'll see it on here. But it's got a, a great cast, which includes, uh, say, Timothy Dalton, Brendan Fraser as Robot Man, Matt Bomer as uh, Negative Man, Larry Trainer. It's it's you want to see your superheroes being audacious, bizarre, uh, with a fair dose of bad language, then the Doom Patrol is for you. And that's it for this week. Um, we'll be back to you hopefully next week. Um, maybe one day we'll even be in the same room together again, Andy. Who knows? <laughs> Eventually, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath because, well, we're we're heading down. We're heading down the road, especially in Sheffield. We are close to heading into a lockdown again. So I hear. All we can do is look after ourselves and stay well, and ask the same of you, Andy. This can't last. This misery can't last. I must remember that and try to control myself. Nothing lasts really. Neither happiness nor despair. So do you, shall I do a quick rundown of what we think the plot is? <laughs> is that it? You, you can try.